Thanks for listening to Vermont Edition. I'm Andrea Lorian, one of the producers on the show, and what you're about to listen to has been edited for clarity and brevity. Thanks for listening, and enjoy. This is Vermont Edition. I'm Michaela Lafrac. When someone asks you about your identity, what do you say? I say, I'm female, Jewish, heterosexual, middle-aged, a mom, a journalist, and I'm white. No one's ever really questioned me on those aspects of my identity. For one, they all pretty much match up with how I present outwardly to the world. That's a privilege. How we feel about ourselves doesn't always track with how the world sees us. In the past decade or so, many of us have gotten more comfortable with discussing identity and how fluid it can be. We've had a number of news events and broader cultural conversations to thank for that. But every big cultural moment can be traced back to real flesh and blood people, people like Rachel Dolezal. In 2015, Dolezal was the president of the NAACP chapter in Spokane, Washington. She granted an interview to a local news reporter about alleged race-related hate crimes against her and her family. The interview took a turn when the reporter asked her, are you African-American? She described that pivotal moment in her book, In Full Color, Finding My Place in a Black and White World, which came out in 2017. Here she is reading from that book. On the surface, it was a simple question, but in reality, it was incredibly complex. Yes, my biological parents were both white, but after a lifetime spent developing my true identity, I knew that nothing about whiteness described who I was. At the same time, I felt it would have been an oversimplification to have simply said yes. After all, I did not identify as African-American, I identified as Black. I also hadn't been raised by black parents in a black community and understood how that might affect the perception of my blackness. In fact, I grew up in a painfully white world, one I was happy to escape from when I left home for college, where my identity as a black woman began to emerge. Forced into an awkward position by the reporter, I equivocated. When he pressed me, I ended the interview and walked away. That local news clip spread quickly, and Rachel Dolezal became a national headline and something of a laughingstock, too. She continues to make headlines to this day. Just yesterday, she was fired from her job with Tucson Public Schools for promoting her OnlyFans account on social media. Rachel Dolezal and all the nuance of her story is the subject of two episodes of the Vermont Public Podcast, Homegoings. Host and executive producer Myra Flynn reintroduces us to Dolezal and her story and dives right into that messiness. You can find those episodes on the Homegoings podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. Myra joins me in the studio now. Welcome back to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. It's great to be here with you, Michaela. We are so glad you are here. And listeners, we are glad you are here with us as well. Did you listen to the first season of Homegoings and specifically these episodes about Rachel Dolezal? What did they bring up for you? Give us a call. Our number is 800-639-2211 or send an email to vermontedition at vermontpublic.org. So Myra, for for anyone who knows your work, this subject makes complete sense. (laughs) Oh, I'm I'm glad. I'm glad. (laughs) But for our listeners who don't know Homegoings, can you tell us just a little bit about what the show is and why a conversation about someone like Rachel makes sense for it? Yeah. Well, 
Uh, Homegoings was born, you know, kind of in this time where I feel like we were having a racial reckoning that never totally reckoned. Like, were we reckoning? Yeah. I still can't decide. And uh, and there was a lot of rhetoric going around. People, you know, armchair therapists, like people trying to figure out how to fix this, like, this thing called, you know, racism, which as a black person was very strange because it was like, well, this has been going on a long time now, right? Mm. But um, But it was cool to see the conversation sparking. That being said, they still seemed pretty binary. Um, you know, a lot of words like black, white, love, hate, good, bad. And that's not how human beings are. We're varied. We're fluid, as you said earlier. How we identify is not always something that um, you can assume anymore. How we vote is not something how, that you can assume. Um, and so I wanted to have a conversation on my show about uh, race from a very nuanced perspective where it was humanity first. Um, humanizing is like the top goal. And and just kind of unpacking how messy, like you said, mm-hmm. and varied we can be as human beings, no matter our race, no matter where we come from. So Rachel seems to be like, for me, the most nuanced conversation about race that, that I could ever think of because she was born biologically white, um, but self-identifies as black um, and racially as human. So there's just a lot of layers there. And I, you know, before her story broke, I hadn't heard of anybody really uh, playing with the fluidity of race in their identity at all. Um, it, it only seemed to show up in, in gender identities. Mm. Um, so for me, this was, it was worth, you know, bringing back. Yeah. Well, in in this episode, in these two episodes, you bring in a variety of voices. You discuss your own feelings about race, racial identity, uh, your own background. Uh, We will hear in just a little bit on this show from two folks who were part of those conversations with you. Um, We also heard from our colleague Jane Lindholm in the episodes. And you talk with Rachel Dolezal herself. What was it like scoring that interview. I can imagine she's very, very wary of the media. Yes. Well, that's what it was like. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the piece that you just brought up from her book, you know, what comes after actually after she stopped speaking was just the fallout for her life, you know, the impact on her life from what happened of turning away from the camera and not answering the question as the president the president of the NAACP chapter in Spokane, Washington. Um you know, to say nothing when asked if you're African-American feels like a very big deal. But the fallout from that was that she couldn't work. She, um, you know, was ostracized from all communities, black communities, white communities. And and you'll learn once you listen to the episode, um, had a lot of fallout with her own family as well. And so it, it was scary to approach her, I think. Like, I, I was interested in the nuance of her humanity, but would she trust that? You know, um, so it took a really long time to get the interview, a lot of back and forth, a lot of conversations, a lot of building trust. Um, and also, I still have a lot of pushback in mm. the episode. Um, so I had to kind of come to terms with the fact that, you know, disagreeing with somebody does not mean that you're dehumanizing, mm. you know, toward them. So, yeah, it's been a, it's been a journey. <laughs> I also, I, I got to, to bear witness to you preparing for this interview <laughs> oh, for months. And it took a lot of research. I mean, you say in the episode, you like watched every interview with her ever. You read her book. You read all these articles. Can you tell us a little bit more about that process of preparing? 
preparing and deciding what types of questions you wanted to ask. Yeah, well, I had a lot of guidance from her manager as to what Rachel would and would not want to talk about, mm. right? But um, they did say everything in her book is kind of fair game. You can bring up anything that's in there. And once you read her book, should you want to read her book, it uh, it has so much in there that I was surprised. I was like, oh, I have a lot. I have a lot more that Rachel might um, answer to in here because, you know, this is kind of the script for her life and her mm. background, which is what I was after. So uh, a lot of it was figuring out kind of phrasing that continued that trust building um, that we had been building together. But uh, a lot of it was just also just wanting to put some really direct questions to Rachel about her choice in her choice in her identity. And, you know, it is a choice. You know, Rachel has the privilege to choose, mm. you know, a different race, racial identity. And I think a lot of the questions I still sit with are like, does everybody have that choice? And even if they do, should they? Mm. We have Matthew in Alberg on the line. Matthew, you're on the air. Go ahead. Great. Greetings, you know, and thank you for taking my call. My question is about acceptance and inclusion for members of, you know, the BIPOC community, the people of color. Uh, my question is about, you know, the white privilege culture that the United States of America and Vermont has to, that's been embedding within our system ever since, you know. How can we step away from this process to be more inclusive about the members of the now than back then? Um, How can we move forward more peacefully to discuss these challenging, important, emotional topics? Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Matthew. Um, one of the things I'm hearing in your comment there is this idea of being able to have these conversations with um with, with that humanity that you're talking about, I think I remember from when Rachel Dolezal was in the news, Myra, that everyone was there was a lot of like making fun of her. There was a lot of kind of screaming New York Post style headlines. Um, it, it was very sensationalized and it was very easy to forget, at least for, remember, for me, I remember it was easy to forget that she was a person out there. You know, she's a mom, too. She's has a community. Um and even if you don't agree with your her choices, there's still people at the heart of this. Um, what was that like for you to try to center her as a human being, even if you didn't agree all the time with what what she had done? Yeah, I mean, it was it was it was the dichotomy was was deeply felt because I think me as a journalist, you know, I remain curious for everybody's story. Everybody has a story. And so I have deep respect for that. And I I really wanted to know about like her childhood and like what landed her, you know, in these in this place with these choices. But as a black woman, right, there's this whole other (laughs) this whole other (laughs) side of feelings. My (laughs) eyebrows went straight up to the ceiling because, um, yeah, I mean, so much of what we at, and I don't want to speak for everyone, but many of us BIPOC people feel uh, that, that we know about our race is it's inherited and it's also a source of pride and also a source of survival. Mm. And so to have anybody like encroach on that, I mean, race is not just skin deep, right? It comes with this inherent like uh, heritage and culture and um, and legacy even, right? And oppression, right? Things that uh, we didn't ask for, that we didn't ask to be born with, right? That we're having to navigate. So to feel like anybody 
wants to participate in like an oppressed way of living, first of all, there's a lot of questions around that. Like what's the benefit, right? Um, conversations about appropriation versus identity, that really came up a lot for me. Um, and then humanity, right? Like everybody's got a story. How did this happen? And I just invite everyone who's, you know, we're talking about these important conversations to always kind of think with uh, or lead with curiosity um, about people, because uh, you don't have to agree with people to find out something really interesting mm. about their story. Yeah. One thing I learned from your podcast was that um, the the names of some other folks who had um, walked, I guess, I'll say, similar paths as Rachel, even though she might be the person whose name most know when we think about these issues of, of how you identify racially and that not quite matching up with your biology or who your parents are. Mm-hmm. Um could you talk a bit about those, the just generally, those other folks that you mentioned and why you think Rachel's story really um, caught on nationally yeah. in, in such a different way? Yeah, like what it was about, about yeah. her. Yeah, well, I think that even more so the platform for some of those people we spoke about, right, like Ollie London, um, somebody who had numerous, numerous plastic surgeries to self-identify or previously self-identify as Korean, Um these people were, uh, the platforms that they were raised to attention on were like Maury and like, you know, Jerry Springer and these talk shows, you know, from a time mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, being sensational was a little bit more normalized, mm-hmm. I think, in our media. And we've gone through a lot um, all together as a country collectively. And like wanting trusted stories, trusted news, trusted sources seems to be much more important um, these days, at least it is to me. And so Rachel, I think, was doing so much great work as an activist. I mean, as an ally, really, she was. She was marching. She was doing the work of a black woman as a black woman, looking like a black woman. And so I think two things. One is it's a white person entering into and claiming black identity, which historically white people claiming blackness and laying claim to blackness um, is very problematic. And also coupled with, but she's, but she's so good at what she's doing. And like, we really need, we really need a Rachel, right? We really need an ally uh, that's doing that kind of work. Mm. So I think there was that rub there of like, what do, what do you do? I mean, Rachel says it right in the episode that we'll, we'll listen to soon, but you know, she says, what are you gonna do with the individual? Like, I, you know, I'm not going anywhere. I'm here. And there are more people who think like me. So maybe the, I mean, I, I hope not to upset anybody with this, but this is why I'm curious. Like, is the idea of race an archaic classification? Have we gotten there? Mm-hmm. Um, is it fluid? Can it be? It is something that brings up, like, straight rage and curiosity and sometimes like joy for the freedom of it all Mm. all at the same time and I think the response from some people I really admire has been that like thank you for making this and I hate you for making this Mm. and I I kind of love that response it's she brings out something in us that we don't know what to do with Mm. And that's right where home goings thrives. Yes, that's where I live, (laughs) in those waters. (laughs) We do have to pause here for a quick break. But when we come back, Myra Flynn and I will be joined by Kwame Dongkwa of 95 X and Rutland NAACP President Mia Schultz to take this conversation even further. You're listening to Vermont Edition. Stay with us. 
Welcome back to Vermont Edition. I'm Michaela LaFrac. Today on the show, we are joined by Myra Flynn, the host and executive producer of Vermont Public's podcast, Home Goings. Her latest two episodes center around the story of Rachel Dolezal, a former regional NAACP president who gained notoriety back in 2015 when it came out that she was born to white parents, even though she identifies as black. Let's also expand the conversation now. We are joined in studio by Kwame Donkwa, the programming director at 95 X, based in Colchester and the host of The Kwame Show. Welcome. Thank you. So fun to have you here. I'm, that I'm radio voice. Here. I know, that I know. radio voice. <laughs> <laughs> and we also have on the line Mia Schultz. She is the president of the Rutland NAACP. Mia, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And of course, I'm not speaking for the NAACP today. I'm just speaking just as yourself, as Mia. Just as myself, <laughs> Mia. Yes. Well, Mia and Kwame, I want to hear from both of you what it was like when Myra reached out to you and said, hey, let's talk about Rachel Dolezal. Oh, Kwame. <laughs> well, <laughs> I said, well, this is a very interesting topic to follow up on because, as I said in the podcast, I have followed this story closely and I actually follow her on Instagram. Mm. So I said, oh, well, let's let's see where this is going and delve into this topic and see how this story has aged since uh, 2015 when it first broke. Or mm. hasn't. Yes. Or hasn't mm. aged, too. Right. right. Yeah. Mia, what was it like for you to get that call from Myra? Well, I think I expressed in the podcast what, what, well, mostly why? Why are we doing this, Myra? <laughs> um, <laughs> and then, as you know, Myra explained, um, you know, how she got involved and how she got became interested in it, it became a curiosity, a, um, a thought pl- process in humanity again. Um, but it was an evolution to get there, I'll tell you that. Mm. Well, Racial identity seems not just tied to to our present, our personal experience, but also what our ancestors went through, Uh, oftentimes their oppression and trauma. Um, I think about this with many of my Jewish friends who might not feel particularly religious, but who feel deeply Jewish because of the trauma of the Holocaust that their families went through and centuries of oppression and, and this, a feeling of inheritance with that. And, and Myra, one of the most powerful moments of this episode for, for me to listen to was when you asked Rachel at one point a really specific question about trauma, about inheritance. Let's take a listen. I'm sure not the first to ask this, but have you had a moment where you've had to be like, Okay, but slavery. How do you how do you find kin- kinship in the communities or even in your activism um, when you don't have that same shared experience? You know what I mean? Historical experience. Does that remove you from some of the conversation or some of that kinship? Yeah. So I mean, it would remove um, me from things like reparations. It would remove me from. That's why I never identified as African American, which is very different than identifying as part of the Black diaspora. So I think that um, there needs to be some nuance in terms of, of how racism affects everyday lived experience for people who may not be African American. I, I mean, I think it comes down to. Um, Yes, there are Black people in America who are not um, 
descendants of chattel slavery. And there are black people all over the world that aren't as well. And there are people all over the world that are. So that's one piece that um, is either part of your lineage or it isn't. There are people who do have those ancestors and there are people who don't. Mia Schultz, I'm curious what, what your thoughts are listening to, to Rachel's answer. Well, Afri- <laughs> African-Americans, um, the history for African-Americans does not begin with slavery. So that's my first instinct. Um, you know, uh, we were obviously taken um, through the Middle Pot Passage and there were there were events for 200 years that reinforced, um, you know, chattel slavery. Um, but it, that's not where African-American history begins. Um, and so I, I feel like that's overly simplistic. Um, that's me personally, to feel like that's a really overly simplistic way to um, identify or separate the generational trauma but as myra also like kind of indicated like there's legacy there and there's legacy that mm-hmm. comes back uh rooting back from africa and so um to claim that that she herself can take that legacy because she can claim to be part of the african diaspora or i i don't know if i'm interpreting that right is too simplistic and does not actually um address the question that myra presented. Hmm. Myra, what do you remember from that yeah, part I of think, the conversation? I think Mia's spot on. And gosh, you know what? I'm sitting here listening, being like, you know what? I think I have this whole show memorized. <laughs> I've spent so much time with this. Um, uh, there's a lot of feelings about that. So, you know, Rachel does not identify as this, to quote her, does not identify as African American. She identifies as part of the black diaspora. And a lot of, of what she says Uh, is, you know, we're all the human race, but we all, if you look far enough back, we all come from a black mother somewhere in Africa. And you essentially get to decide your proximity to that. Hmm. And so, okay, fine. But there are certain parts of being black American that, you know, historically cannot be shared. And slavery, the the history of slavery, what that's done um, to us and and for us as a culture, um, it's that's an that's an intimate you know shared heritage and cultural experience. That's uh, the weathering that's passed down from my parents to you know my grand my grandparents to my parents. I mean, just watch like you were saying with the Holocaust, just watching what that has done to shape not only my racial identity but my identity uh, as a as a human being is not up for grabs. That's not that story is not up for everybody to kind of weave themselves into. Mm. And so and so Rachel doesn't, but then it's also coupled with the black community needs to have more nuance and acceptance for people who haven't experienced that. And then goes on to speak about people, and this would be really interesting to hear from you, Kwame, mm-hmm. because you are um, African and American, and American yes. but not by the way in America we would define African-American, right? So, yeah, I mean, how do you feel? I'm sorry to... No, is, do I'm it. How do you feel? How do you feel about this? Yeah, this that, nuance. That segment 
with that answer actually hit a nerve for me, but not in the way that most people would expect. Hmm. Uh, growing up with my American family, I, I was able to observe and absorb all of the traditions that most African-American families would have. But then visiting my Ghanaian family and seeing the separation and the outright things that were said that were pretty much told to me that my African-American side is not looked at as equal to my Ghanaian African side. So the people that were the product of slaves are not as equal to the people that came from the motherland as purebloods. So when she said this, it actually hit a nerve for me and brought me back to that experience, knowing that one part of my family did not see me mm. as an equal. Mm. And when she talks about the African-American experience and she says, well, I consider myself in the proximity to blackness, I guess I could kind of see her point because this part over here on my right, my African side, did not see the proximity as the African-American side as close enough. Mm. It's so layered, Michaela. It's so layered. I mean, how much time you got? We're going to be here for days. <laughs> well, let's let's bring in some calls. We have some, sure. some folks on the line who I think would love to weigh in on, on these layers. We'll start with John in Waterford. John, you're on the air. Go ahead. Hi. Thanks for taking the call. Yes, um, I, I consider myself a pretty open-minded person, um, but I got I got to say that this particular conversation sort of seems to make it very difficult to sort of keep up hmm. um, from gender to race. Um, these divisions, um, putting people in silos, it seems like it, it's becoming quite divisive and you know, very, very difficult, again, to keep up from Katanji Brown-Jackson not defining what a woman is to now we're at a place where a white woman can do a good job as a black woman. But as the as the um, guest mentioned, they, they may hate her for it. Um, so the the complete lack of clarity, uh, again, is very difficult. And I think it's it's almost to the point where people are just going to throw their hands up. I mean, again, trying to be open-minded, but not nobody able to define any terms is very difficult to have a conversation. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I get that. It's hard. There's no clear answers here. And I think, Myra, that's that's what you handle so so well and so openly in the podcast. Um, Mia, I'm, I'm wondering what, what your thoughts are there for, for John. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is difficult to find clarity nowadays, nowadays. And I, I do believe in people being able to, to claim who they are. Um, and yet, in this particular case, when we're talking about black people and the legacy of black people in America, I think that we have a pretty clear history, we have, um, um, accomplishments. And in fact, we're in Black History Month right now, mm -hmm. um, where we celebrate those accomplishments of people who have been subjugated over hundreds and hundreds of years in this nation. And um, it's pretty clear to me that, um, that Black people um, have earned the right to call themselves Black and to 
that be pretty definitive. And it also goes back to me thinking about clarity. There were laws around um, who was considered Black. There was a one-drop rule, if you remember, and that was in order to proliferate slavery with that one-drop rule, right? And so it was pretty clear then who was Black. Um, If Rachel Dozell was living back then, she didn't have one drop. She would have all the privileges of a white woman, regardless of how she identified. Um, So I don't know if that brings more clarity to anybody. I just know that uh, for me, um, identity has been always kind of a pursuit as a mixed race woman, black woman pursuit that I have, you know, been challenged with um, because I am fairly light skinned and um, I I do have privilege. I also do also know that I have a lineage and a legacy and generational trauma and all of those things that come with it. And I have, our family has earned the right to call ourselves black and I have earned that. And I'm not sure that Rachel um, has has necessarily gets to be put in there. But um, I also do want to recognize that there are people who, who, for example, in gender, I think that gender and race and particularly Black people are two different uh, lanes. And so I want to recognize that people do have the right to self-identify. Um, and um, yeah, I don't know if that clarified mm. anything at all. I will say, too, one other thing, and I'm taking up a lot of space, but I came from southern Arizona, um, where it was a large um, Latino population, Mexican population in particular. I grew up with Mexicans. I know I eat the food. I speak the language. I go to the parties. I go to the quinceañeras, right? I am very invested in Mexican culture, and yet there is not one drop of Mexican in me. And I would never claim to be part of the, to be Mexican. Mm. I would never claim to do that. Mm. And so this is coming, if we're looking at our humanity, I'm just looking at, we can look at Rachel's humanity as a person and where is this coming from, but also looking at the humanity of us as Black people. Mm. Mia, one thing that that you said about those um, those differences between um, racial identity and gender identity reminded me of an email that we got ahead of today's show from Lane in Barry City. I'm going to read that here. Lane writes, "I am a white trans person who feels a deep sense of responsibility for understanding my work in racial justice work. There's a huge difference between identifying as transgender and identifying as quote transracial, and the difference is often, or excuse me, the difference is whiteness. White trans white racial identity was invented for oppressive purposes to." working class people with European ancestry into a sense of solidarity with the ruling class. However, people and groups who enjoy white privilege have ethnicities and pre-colonial histories that do include rich traditions, rituals, and practices. As a white person with Jewish, Scandinavian, and Irish heritage, I find meaning and belonging in learning about my ancestral traditions. But 
as I reclaim those ethnic traditions, I cannot pretend that I'm not also racially white. That's the, that's a different thing that is about structural privilege, and it comes with responsibility. I wish Rachel would turn towards her people and away from the super white practice of claiming what's not hers. Mm. On that, I'm going to just pause for a second because so, we got lots of folks on the line Great. who are waiting patiently. Let's bring in one more. Rowan in Walden is on the line. Rowan, you're on the air. Go ahead. Hi, thanks. Um, I, th- <clears throat> I think the missing part of the narrative that I'm hearing that as we look for clarity is that why are there Rachels and why are people um, taking such what seem like odd stances about who they are? And I think in the U.S. it's because we lack meaning. I'm a psychotherapist, by the way, so this is my business to talk about meaning. People lack meaning in their lives, so it's really easy to pick up the victimized status. I want to be more like these people who have been historically victimized, so I'm important too. And that in and of itself is a racially dominant idea, that I can switch and, and take as much I want from this culture and that culture, but because primarily because it's in the mode of victimization. And you can't take that to your guest's point. You can't take that away from people that were brought here in chains. You can never take that from them. And the idea that you can code switch and do it is offensive. And mm-hmm. I think it's because, that's fine, we all deal with offensive people. And it's because people lack meaning in their own humanity. Because, by the way, the idea of a white race, a Caucasoid race, the Negroid race, the Mongoloid race, these were, these were completely false. They don't exist. They're Rowan, I'm going to jump race. in here because I just want to make sure our guests can have a chance to, to respond to what you've brought up before we have to take a break. Um, Myra, what are, you, what are you hearing in Rowan's comment? Yeah, I'm thinking, Rowan, where were you when I needed a psychotherapist <laughs> to interview for the, the podcast? <laughs> I thought you were going to say just for yourself. <laughs> yeah. Where are you when I need a psychotherapist now? Um yeah, uh, what does this bring up for me? Lots of things. You know, to Mia's point, we are we are much more than just oppressed people who represent an alignment with victimhood and uh, people who are right here in chains. There's a lot of reasons to want to be black. We're awesome. We're fun. We've made all the music, all the food, all the streetwear, all the cool clothes, all the buildings, all the electricity, all the things. We've done all the things, and we've done it with a fierce, in- inherent, inherent resilience despite or even in spite of our heritage and our culture. So when Mia speaks about like that badge, that badge of honor, it is not always one that I wear with oppression. You know, Mm. it's one that I wear. I'm very proud to be black. I like being black. I like this life. I like this skin. So, you know, there's a part of me that's kind of like, all right, all right, Rachel, like you're just trying to be down. Like what's going on? Mm. (laughs) You know, what's up? Um, But, you know, in interviewing her, I just have a whole different insight into some of her choices and why they were made. And I am not a psychotherapist, but a big thing to look into with this story is how Rachel was raised, how she was brought up. And we don't have to get into that now. You lead the way, Michaela, but um, that has a lot to do with it, right? Our circumstances, our environment. And um, and and I think, like, just to, to sum it up, I've had to kind of let go of this, this question that Rowan just asked, like, why aren't we asking why there are Rachels out there? Mm. I've had to let go of the why, and dive more into should, like should 
this be allowed? Should this be accepted? Should this be okay? Mm. Because everybody is going to have a different why, mm. right? It's totally subjective mm. um, and circumstantial and environmental. We, we have just a minute before we have to take a break, but Kwame, I'd love your thoughts here too. Do you think about that question of, of why Rachel did what she did? Or are you, you coming from where Myra is? This Let's move on to the should. Should this be accepted? I think that we should move on to the should. That's in my opinion, because asking people why will never get us an answer that is satisfactory. So in embracing other people and trying to move forward as a society, we have to ask the question, what are our clear rules going to be as a society and how far are we going to go before we have to give up what we know is true to accept someone's believed identity? And what harm is it doing? I'll just add mm. that. And what harm is it doing? Mm. Yeah. Lots more to get to. We do need to take one more short break. You're listening to Vermont Edition. Stay with us. Welcome back to Vermont Edition. I'm Michaela Lefrac. If you're just joining us, our guests today are Myra Flynn, the host and executive producer of the podcast and show Homegoings, Kwame Donkwa, the programming director at 95 X and host of The Kwame Show, and Mia Schultz, the president of the Rutland NAACP. Our conversation today is around identity and specifically racial identity. Identity. It's inspired by the latest two episodes of Homegoings about Rachel Dolezal. She was a former NAACP president in Washington state who gained notoriety in 2015 when it came out she was born to white parents, even though she identified, still identifies as black. Let's go right back to the phones. We have uh, we have Madison on the line in Burlington. Madison, you're on the air. Go ahead. All right. Thank you so much. Kwame, you talked about... Um basically how your identity was policed uh, as someone who was Ghanaian. Um, and I think about uh, during COVID and Clubhouse came out, if you remember that, mm-hmm. um, Stefan Gillum invited me to a mix with Black Clubhouse. And the first Clubhouse that I participated in, and it was you know for biracial folks, um, we were traumatized because someone who identified as uh, being um, mono, black, black, uh, basically men had told us that we weren't. And so there was policing there on our proximity to blackness. Mm. And unfortunately, I find myself in the same position as a biracial black person where, yes, I am absolutely not white, but there are often times when the black community is telling me, well, not really. And my own blackness is police. So just going to leave that there for you folks to discuss. And mm. thank you. Mm. Thank you. Uh, Mia, I, I feel like that, that hits on a point that you made earlier as well. What, what are your thoughts hearing, hearing Madison there talking about that, that policing? Yeah, I've experienced the same thing, Madison. And I think I was listening in on the same clubhouse at the time. And um, yeah, I wrestle with it because I do understand um as having, you know, my my partner is is very dark skin. Um, my kids are darker skin even than I am, and I do see that they experience they have a different experience than I do um, in many ways. And so I do understand in some ways that um, policing comes from a place of, you know, an experience and a lens. Um, 
And so I try to find my privilege, try to find where the understand the history and the lens that my my the people around me might be um, experiencing who are darker skin. And yet the only place where I have really been policed um, around my identity is here in Vermont. When I'm around black people in California, in Florida, in the South, they just accept me as black. But when I have been in Vermont, there has been more of a uh, distinction, including by white people hmm. who say that I am not um, black enough to be able to speak about black people. Hmm. Um, so, you know, policing happens from all angles and I can understand it coming from darker skin people, but it doesn't make it right. I'm not, I'm not endorsing it. I'm just saying that it comes from a place, a lens of real trauma. And mm. I try to be considerate of that. And still, I know who I am. Mm. At the end of the day, I know who I am. I know who my father is. I know who my grandparents are. And I know what they experienced. And that is what um, I have to center myself in. Mm. Mia, I know you're, you're joining us by Zoom right now, but you're getting some snaps in the studio. Yes, I'm, <laughs> I'm over here snapping like all the time, everything Mia says. Let's go go back to the phones. We have Jules in South Burlington on, on the air. Jules, go ahead. Hey, thank you so much um, for hosting this nuanced conversation. Um, I'm listening to the story about Rachel Dolezal, and I'm wondering if there's any connections that we can make to the Vermont Abenaki who seem to have no Abenaki ancestry, which would make you think, similar to Rachel, that they're white, and yet there seems to be more nuance. So I'm just wondering if there's a way that we can think about, as you're talking about, like holding people's humanity, but then also holding the humanity of the people who, like, you know, in the case of black women, um, for Rachel Dolezal, or for holding the, holding the humanity of, like, the Odenak, um mm-hmm. Abenaki First Nation, who denounces the state-recognized tribes. Maya, mm. i got to ask you about this one, because you, you worked uh, on Vermont Public mm-hmm. series Recognized about uh, these very issues that, that Jules is bringing up. Did did thoughts of that series and that, that story come up when you were working on this episode about Rachel Dolezal? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I was a sensitivity editor on that piece um, by Elodie Reed and Brave Little State. It's so awesome, if folks haven't listened to it, to just learn so much about this exact topic. Um, because I feel like I, I, I didn't know a lot of what, of what was happening. Like, where are these conversations happening? And so, yes, there are parallels there. And I'm, you know going to leave that conversation for another day because it's a little bit of a rabbit hole but I will just say that if we're if we're beginning to look for comparisons and and through lines right with gender with the Abenaki culture and uh, conversation with Rachel Dolezal and you know uh, just identity in general like I think it's important to recognize the different harms and histories of oppression are are very individual to each of these topics, these Mm. huge, huge topics. The legacy of oppression and trauma in black American culture is one that is incredibly unique as we are, to my knowledge, the only forced immigrants in this country. Now, we can pick pull that apart. There's all sorts of ways to look at the word forced. But 
the dependency, right, the dependency that was there on white people, white culture to be able to survive while being, you know, lynched, raped, whipped, abused. You know, this legacy um, makes our thriving so important. It makes not just our surviving now, but our thriving, our excellence, you know, mm-hmm. how we got out of that and what we've done since so important. But it also makes slavery America's like deepest wound and, and regret and shame in a lot of ways. And so to have a white person enter that space and claim that space means something different than it would in all of the other communities that we're listing. And so I just try to do the work, not to paint a broad brush on all of it um, and say, what are we all doing here? How are we all identifying differently? All, all, all. I don't like that word, all. Let's look at this particular circumstance Mm -hmm. with Rachel, because there are similarities, but there's also a specific wound Mm. that she touches on. Yeah. And and Rachel and her choices, those continue to reverberate today um uh, we mentioned at the top of the show that she's back in the headlines again this week she she was fired from her job with tucson public schools for promoting an OnlyFans account on social media which they said violated their social media guidelines uh, for the school district um kwame what what did you think of that news of seeing that that name back in the headlines i think it just goes to show that especially after the the story first broke and how infamous she became she indirectly got the black experience mm. snap i'm and <laughs> verbal, snap, snap. verbal snaps <laughs> and <laughs> it's hard for and no she went through a long time of being blacklisted and she wasn't able to find work so when people aren't able to find work, they tend to stoop to things that they would not normally do. And she had to use the one thing that she wasn't necessarily hiding, but she wasn't projecting, to use that to now make money for themselves. Kind of like how rea- how um, how infamous stars go on reality shows to make money after. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing. She now had to use the identity that she had that she was using for good work as something to feed her family. So it's a, it's a very nuanced conversation because I strongly believe had that story never broken, she would probably still be working at the NAACP and we would never have seen this OnlyFans page and we wouldn't be here right now. But again, she is at the center of another controversy. She's at the center of another controversy that sparks a a wider and broader conversation. Like, what's really interesting to me about Rachel is that a lot of this is about her and none of this is about her. Mm. It's bigger than her. Right. We are here. We are here talking about identity and fluidity and things that are so much bigger than just the Rachel Dolezal scandal. I believe that her, you know, public firing as well, like teachers and OnlyFans, right? And money making and capitalism. How does this all work, right? So, you know, that's a conversation for another day, obviously, but she is she sparked some controversies that bring up some pretty big conversations. Ooh, indeed. And Myra, if I know you, you are going to keep having those conversations sure on home goings <laughs> elsewhere. You have a big event coming up too. Can you tell yeah. us a little bit about what's coming up next for, yeah. for you? If you all like this kind of nuanced conversation, you should come to Chandler Music Hall, Chandler Center for the Arts in Randolph, Vermont at 7 
p.m. on Saturday because five of the artists from the podcast will be taking to the stage, followed with a, like a Q&A um, between the audience and the artists. And it gets it gets real. It gets deep. It's beautiful, beautiful art and also really um, intriguing and curious conversation. Mm. And Randolph is a place near and dear to your heart, yeah, right? I, I actually grew up on that stage. Yeah. So, yeah, it's very, very cool. Come on out. All right. Well, we are going to have to wrap this up here, though. I have so many more questions for all three of you. So hopefully there will be a part two soon. You can find Homegoings wherever you get your podcasts, also on vermontpublic.org. Myra, thank you so much. Myra Flynn. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much, Michaela. And Kwame Donkwa, it was great to have you in studio with us. It was it was a great experience. And thank you for walking or, or driving across the, the parking lots in yes. Colchester to get to <laughs> us. And Mia Schultz, thank you as well. It was such a pleasure. Thank you so much. And happy back Black History Month. Myra, I just want to say you are Black History. Kwame, you are Black History. Oh, so I you. am Black History. You are. And Rachel is White History. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's a mic drop. That's a mic drop. I'm going to wrap it up there.